to start, let me ask you, and feel free to interact with me, what, what is your favorite type of candy? Fast breaks, okay. That was, that was quick. Anyone else? What's your favorite type of candy? Yes. Lifesavers. Life yes. A man after my own heart. A man after my own heart. That's right. Peter Bear M&M's. Amen. Almond Joys? Yeah. Kit Kats. Anyone else? Yeah. Reese's Cups and what? Jolly Ranchers. Yes. Kit Kats? Any chocolate, my sense. It was surprised. Anyone else? Yeah. Over here. Twix? York Peppermint Patties and? Snickers, yes. A Heath Bar. All right, you know what? Adults, the kids are putting you to shame. Surely some adults are like candy. What kind of candies do you like? Malt Say that again? Malt oh, Malt and Malt, okay. Hershey Kisses? Hershey Kisses? Gummy, bears. Uh, gummy Bears, what? Sweet Tarts and Gummy Bears, yeah. Oh, well, say again? Payday Bars, yes. Gr cookie Dough, yes. In any form, right? Pre. Oh, nice. We'll have to go there next time. I recently read an article that had this title. Candy isn't bad for you, <laughs> says study funded by candy companies. <laughs> According to the study funded by the National Confectioners Association, candy eating isn't really as bad as you've heard. Who would have thought? Candy makers, evidently. The study claims that candy eating is not linked to obesity, heart disease, or a range of other serious health risks. Listen to this line from the report. Frequency of candy consumption was not associated with the risk of obesity, overweight obesity, elevated waist circumference, <laughs> never heard that before, elevated skin fold thickness, blood pressure, cholesterol, triglycerides, or insulin resistance. Increased frequency of candy consumption was associated with higher energy intakes and higher adju energy adjusted intakes of carbohydrates, total sugars and added sugars. Translated, it's practically good for you. If only it were true, right? Of course, a study funded by the National Confectioners Association is going to say that candy eating is practically good for you. Now, I, I don't know if all of you like candy. It seemed like a good portion of you do like candy. I don't know if all of you do. But what I do know for sure, regardless of your opinion about sweets and candy, what I do know about all of you is that each of us have strong cravings of some kind. And not just in regards to candy. In fact, you don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to think about this for a moment. What is the one thing you really, really want? You really, really crave, yet you don't currently have. 
This is to say, if you were to put down on paper, what is your greatest unmet desire? A restored marriage? A child of your own? Children who believe? Maybe as you're thinking about what's your greatest unmet desire, the thing you crave the most, maybe the thing that comes to mind is a certain lifestyle or a certain level of income. Or maybe what pops into your mind is healing from a certain physical ailment or pain. Or maybe what it is is you just crave a life. Your greatest craving is a life that is free from any kind of difficulty or hardship. I want us just to begin, before we study God's Word, just to think about for a moment, what is your, what is my, the thing you crave the most, your greatest unmet desire? Because faith, all of us have these, all of us has desires. And please listen to me, and you know what our desires say to us? Like the candy company, they say fulfilling them is good for you. In fact, our desires, they say to us repeatedly, they say seize and fulfill them whenever you can. Do whatever it takes to seize and to get what you want. Our desires are constantly speaking to us. They're counseling us. And here's the question I want us to ask. Is that good counsel? This morning, I want us to consider this question, and that is, how should we think about our longings and desires? What should we be telling ourselves about them, and then how ought we to respond to them? Because, friend, please hear me, like with the candy company, what our desires are saying to ourselves may not be true, and indeed their counsel might even be dangerous. So how ought we to think about such matters? Well, turn within your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1. That's page 254 in that paperback Bible. This morning we begin a new series in the book of 2 Samuel. However, in many ways, it's not a new series, but rather it's a continuation of our study of 1 Samuel. For as many of you know, 1 and 2 Samuel are really one book. Well, if the theme from 1 Samuel was that phrase by the Israelites, give us a king. That was the theme for 1 Samuel, give us a king. The main emphasis we're going to see of 2 Samuel is a promised king. In 1 Samuel, the people of God demanded to have a king. Remember this? They wanted a king like the what? Nations. And that's what they got in Saul. And as we've seen, 
Saul proved to be disastrous. Now enter David, the anointed shepherd boy from Judah. But here's what we need to say at the outset of this book. As great as David is, what you need to know is that the emphasis of 2 Samuel is not David, but the promised king that will come from his line, namely Jesus of Nazareth, the king we all need to rule our lives. And this is going to be made clearer as we work our way through this book. But to start, I want you to notice that 2 Samuel doesn't begin with the news, the good news of God's true promised coming king. But rather, 2 Samuel begins with the news of the death of Israel's first king, Saul. And as we're about to see, I'm going to argue this text provides excellent counsel concerning how we ought to think about the strong, unmet desires we have. And, and we're going to get there by reading this chapter in light of the previous book, 1 Samuel. My, this is one of the reasons why we are really committed at Faith Community Church to expositional preaching, working through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, because we would miss so much if we just jumped into 2 Samuel, divorced of what we've already learned thus far. Because I think when we see it in light of the overall structure of these two books, we're going to see that there's good counsel for us concerning how to think about our unmet desires. And why do I say that? I say that because as several commentators have pointed out, 2 Samuel 1 raises the same question David faced in 1 Samuel 24 through 26, and that is this. And that is, how will David... Rather, how will the kingdom come into David's hands? We could put it this way. How will David finally experience a longing he had? And you know what that longing was? To be delivered from Saul. How will David experience ex escaping the threat of death by Saul and... How will we also come to delight in being the king of Israel? Another desire of his. Do you see this? And the question is, will David submit to God and trust God's means and timing? Or will he seize these things by his own initiative? Let's find out. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Like I said, that's page 254 in that paperback Bible. And as you're turning there, let me just give you the brief context. While I also make sure this works, which it may not. Greg, is yours working? As, as Greg's looking to see how we can... Oh, you know what? I think I got it. Here we go. Great. I got it. Excellent. So, First uh, Samuel left off by describing the death of Saul. 
There's a short chapter, 13 verses, describing the death of Saul. Well, chronologically, well, the death of Saul was taking place in 1 Samuel 30. Do you remember what David was doing? David was responding to the Amalekites' attack on Ziklag by going to them, raiding them, plundering them, and then sending gifts to all the people throughout Israel. Remember this? Okay, this, this is important for us to understand as we pick things up in 2 Samuel 1. The other thing I want to say by way of introduction is that on one level, what we're about to see is that the author of 2 Samuel, he's going to make it clear that David is the anointed king that Saul was not. David is obedient where Saul has failed. The author's going to make that very clear, but that's not all we get to take away from this opening chapter. This chapter also provides us with some solid biblical counsel. So let's, let's dive in. 2 Samuel chapter 1, I'm going to read through verse 16. Let me read this. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And actually, what we're going to find here in this opening chapter, David does a really great job of asking questions. In fact, it's almost, you could say, a model of asking clarifying questions to draw information out. Before David makes any judgment or makes any action, he first asks a bunch of clarifying questions to make sure he really understands what's going on. And it would serve us all well in our relationships to do the same. That's for free. Okay. Verse 4. So he asked this guy, where have you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horses were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him. All right, class. Pop quiz. Is that true? No. What is the Amalekite doing? He's lying. Because the author of the same book just told us precisely how Saul died. 
And did someone kill him? Saul killed himself, right? Now, I want us just to think for a moment, why do you think this guy would lie about killing Saul? Let that marinate in your mind for a moment of how that could be of advantage to him. But notice how David responds. We see here, verse 10, he said, So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he would not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, I want you to consider this, okay? Based on the chronology of the final chapters of 1 Samuel, it appears that while this Amalekite was plundering Saul, you know what David was doing? Plundering the Amalekites as recorded in 1 Samuel 30. And now notice, this Amalekite is giving David his plunder. So he says he killed Saul. Here are his crown and his armlet. What's David going to do? Verse 11, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. His first response was grief. Verse 13, And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? What you need to know is this. As a sojourner, this, meant this would have been Amalekite who was growing up in Israel with the people of God, which means he would have known better. He would have clearly known, if he is who he claims to be, a sojourner, he would have clearly known he should not have raised his hand against the Lord's anointed. Yet, this was his lie. And notice where it gets him. Verse 15. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Amen and amen. This is God's word. Uh, one of my favorite snacks to eat are kettle chips. Anyone else enjoy kettle chips? And by the way, I promise you, not all my illustrations this morning have to do with food. I promise you that. Okay? But for my fellow chip lovers, have you ever had this happen to you where you pull the chip out of the bag and the shape of the chip looked like some other object? You know, like you pull a chip, you're like, oh, well, this, this chip looks like the shape of the state of Kentucky or... Or football. You know what I'm talking about? Has that ever happened? Maybe, hopefully. 
Okay. Yes, good. Thank you. Someone. Well, the next time you find such an odd-shaped chip, you might want to consider saving it rather than eating it. Why? Because according to the Associated Press, Doritos offered to pay a 13-year-old girl in Australia $200,000 because she found a rare puffy Doritos chip. On June 11th, Riley Stewart posted a video on TikTok showing a chip that was bloated across all three of its points. She discovered it while eating a packet of the snacks. Here's a picture of the chip in Riley in the background. The video went viral and has garnered more than 4 million views. Riley then went on to put the chip up for sale for 99 cents, which stated, here's how she described it, Puffy Dorito, one of a kind. It wasn't long before she started receiving bids up to $999,000. That's when Doritos contacted her. Doritos was so impressed with Riley's boldness and entrepreneurial spirit that they wanted to make sure that her family was rewarded for their creativity and their love for Doritos. In an interview, Riley said she had intended to eat the chip, but then had second thoughts, can you imagine the moment? <laughs> you're really hungry, you look, you're like, I wonder if I should eat this or not. She, she said this, she says, I was about to eat it, and I thought better save it for later. And then she went on to say this, and I'm really proud of this dad. She said, my dad is saying that since he bought the packet, <laughs> it's his chip. <laughs> but I ate the packet and found it, so I believe it's mine. And this is what I want you to find. This rare, super uncommon, not a lot. Did Riley go seeking to find out this chip? No, it was, it was simply given to her. And actually, if you think about it, it was given to her by her father. Tell me, Faith, what two rare and very valuable items does David receive from this Amalekite? There's something far more valuable than a puffy Dorito. What are they? The crown and armlet. David receives Saul's crown and armlet. And tell me, how did it come to David? You know how it came to David? Like Riley, it came to David by the hand of David's heavenly father, not by his own effort. In God's providence, he brought it to him. As Peter Lightheart has insightfully pointed out, these are not the only kingly items David has received thus far. Think with me as we've been studying the life of David in 1 Samuel. What else has David received? He's received the priest Abiathar in the ephod. He's received the sword of Goliath. And I also recall he also received the showbread from the priests. And this is what I want us to do as we take a step back and consider what's happening in David's life and what is he doing and not doing with his desires. And what I want to point out is that David obtained these not by taking matters into his own hands, did he? David 
obtained them not through seizing control, although he had multiple opportunities to do so, didn't he? I mean, think of how many times David could have killed Saul, yet he didn't. No, instead of taking matters into his own hands, you know what David did? And we see this throughout 1 Samuel and even here, which is the culmination of this. Instead of taking matters in his own hands, David submitted to God and obeyed God's commands. And here we see the fruit of such, of such actions. He receives the kingdom not by force, but through submission to God, his timing, and his ways. You see, Faith, this is what I want to argue. I think this episode in the life of David challenges us, God's people today, with this exhortation, is that, that is this. When it comes to your desires, friend, don't seize control, but submit to God. Don't seize control, but submit to God. This is to say, don't take matters into your own hands and listen to the lies of your desires when they tell, them, tell you to fulfill them no matter what. No, instead... Submit yourself to God. Trust Him. This, I want to argue, is the lesson we learn from God's Spirit-anointed King in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So let's just drill down here for a moment, okay? Friend, what is your greatest desire and longing? Is it a spouse or a child? Maybe it's a certain lifestyle or level of income. Maybe it's healing from a physical ailment or pain. Maybe it's a restored marriage. What is it you want most? Friend, I believe from the life of David, who, as we've talked about, is a type of Christ... David is showing us and encouraging us and counseling us to not take matters into our own hands simply by trying to seize such desires, but instead to submit ourselves to God and entrust our longings to Him. But I want to also suggest that this can be easier said than done, can it? It's hard for me. So how can we resist the urge to so often take control and try to seize what we really want rather than waiting and entrusting ourselves to the Lord? Well, I want to argue that the author intentionally highlights the Amalekite in this chapter in order to warn us against two common ways we seek to seize control in order to fulfill our desires. Again, we are not going to come to these observations if we read this chapter in isolation from the rest of 1 Samuel or where the rest of the Bible is going. The Amalekite is brought up in order to warn us against two common ways we seek to seize control in order to fulfill our desires. Here's the two most common ways we like to take matters into our own hands. And here's the first warning that I want to encourage you. This text warns us to not seize control 
through disobedience. Notice again in verses 6 through 10. And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am a what? What does he say? An Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And then this Amalekite, and I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Uh, last year, amidst all the other challenges, health officials in Virginia warned residents about venomous caterpillars that looked like a toupee. <laughs> do, do you remember this? Remember this? It was actually all over the news. news true story. Uh, here's a picture. Yeah. According to NBC, although the bug looked like a harmless discarded toupee, the hairs on the caterpillar were actually venomous spines that caused a painful reaction if touched. This is to say, although the caterpillar looked innocent, it was actually quite dangerous. It is not what it seems. Well, the passage I just read reminds us of a very similar truth. However, it's not about caterpillars, <laughs> but it's about obedience. And you know what the lesson is we learn from this? And that is this partial obedience is no obedience. That's right. Partial obedience is what? No obedience. This is to say partial obedience is not what it seems. It's not something innocent and harmless like a toupee but rather partial obedience is like a venomous caterpillar. It's actually harmful. And I want you to see how this truth is illustrated in this text. Tell me, class, in 1 Samuel 15, what did Saul fail to do? To put it another way, in what way did Saul only partially obey the Lord? Do you remember? It has to do with what people group? The Amalekites. Is that what you're going to say, Will? Okay. <laughs> but no, but it's the Amalekites. That's right. God clearly instructed Saul to obliterate, completely wipe out the Amalekites. Did Saul do that? No. Instead of completely wiping them out as God has commanded, Saul decided to keep their king alive as well as, and this is important, plunder the Amalekites of all their good things. Did Saul kill the Amalekites? Yes, but not all of them. That's why we have this chap showing up in this chapter. Indeed, what we learn when we look back at 1 Samuel 15 is that because Saul valued the things of this world more than God, he took, as he looked at all that there was 
in the Amalekite camp, he took, quote, all that was good, as 1 Samuel 15:9 states. In disobedience to God's commands, Saul listened to his desires, and he plundered the Amalekites. Now, notice the irony of the text I just read. As pastor and author Tim Chester has correctly observed, he says this, Saul lost his kingdom because he plundered the Amalekites against God's strict orders. Now an Amalekite has plundered him. And there's a warning here, isn't there? Like Saul, man, in the wake of subverting God's commands by taking matters into our own hands, we can often justify our actions by claiming partial obedience. Yet, friend, let this lesson from Saul's life chasten your wayward thinking. Please hear me. Partial obedience does not round up to full obedience. It rounds down to disobedience. What we're seeing in 2 Samuel chapter 1 are the ramifications of Saul's disobedience. Saul wanted something so badly. He wanted the plunder. He wanted that the text says all that his eyes saw were good that he only obeyed halfway, which the Bible makes clear is no way. It's disobedience. And what I want to do is just drill down here for a moment and, and have us consider, think how easy it is for us as God's people today to claim partial obedience as a cover for when we take matters into our own hands. For example, think about God's commands concerning trials. Are we not instructed to give thanks in all circumstances? Are we not to count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds? And does Paul not make it clear in Romans 8.28 that the reason why we are to give thanks in all circumstances is because of the truth that God is at work in all things for our good? That is, he's doing something in us through the difficulty. The answer to that is yes. Yet how often do I, or how often do we justify our grumbling and complaining attitudes amidst hardships? Because, hey, at least we're not turning away from the Lord. At least I'm still going to church. At least I'm still reading my Bible. But we're like that child who is standing up on the inside. <laughs> I have to tell you, the Lord recently convicted me about this. There was, there was a time when I was experiencing a, a hardship during the day, and you know what I wanted to do? I just wanted to take control. My desire was for relief, not this hardship. And instead of submitting to God's commands on how I ought to obey in response to those around me, I listened to my desire, which was, Aaron, comfort's the best thing for you right now. So seize control. And in so doing, 
by taking matters into my own hands because I was listening to my desire instead of entrusting that desire to the Lord, the fruit of my actions were thorns and thistles. Because I was not trusting God in that moment and submitting to Him, I was not displaying the fruit of the Spirit, but the deeds of the flesh. But, <laughs> I want to tell you how sophisticated I am in my sin. Because I was doing something nice for someone, I'm inconveniencing myself for this person. I justified it. Partial obedience. This text is encouraging us, like Saul, to not seize control through disobedience. But then second, it warns us not to seize control through deception. Look at verses 11 and following. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and they wept and fasted until evening, for Saul and Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the whole house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? He answered, I am a son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Uh, how many of you use GIFs in your text correspondence with other people? Do most of you use GIFs? Some of you? Okay. Well, I do. And when I get a text that has some really good news I'm super excited about, here's my favorite GIF to reply with. That's this one. <laughs> Every single I just love it. Like if someone tells me something good, I'm like, yeah, yeah. I don't know how old that little guy is, but he is super, super happy. Now, if I were King David... And I just got a text message that Saul died. You know, the guy who's been trying to kill me for years? If I just got a text message that Saul had died, I would reply with this Jeff. <laughs> I would be elated. I mean, wouldn't you? But notice, that's not how David responds, is it? No. How does David respond? David responds by mourning the death of both Jonathan and Saul. Now we're going to talk about this more next week, but I want to point out that David's response to this news reveals how his heart was God-centered and not self-centered. More on that next week. But in contrast, notice what we learn about this Amalekite. I have no doubt that his response to Saul's death was much like this gif. Why? Because as several commentators have pointed out, he saw this as a glorious opportunity to create a story in order to gain favor in David's sight and perhaps earn a position in the new guy's court, the new king of power. 
You see, this Amalekite, he thought David was a king like the nations, just like Saul. But David is not a king like the nations, is he? And we know this is the case because of the questions David asked the Amalekite. Most significantly, the one there in verse 14, when he says, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed? As we talked about a moment ago, as a sojourner, this Amalekite says, he would have known better. So David orders him to be killed. But this is what I want you to see. Notice again the irony of this passage. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul claimed to have wiped out the Amalekites, but he did not. Now an Amalekite has claimed to wipe out Saul, but he did not. And what's the result for both of them? Death. So why did the Amalekite lie to David? The same reason Saul lied, and that's because he wanted something he did not have. I know at first glance, it doesn't appear that this text has anything to do with our longings and desires. When you take a moment to put yourself in the narrative, to think about what they're thinking and what they're experiencing, it becomes oh so clear. This guy, and this is what we have to understand, friend, underneath every lie, nobody just lies for grins and giggles. Underneath all of our deception is a ruling desire. There's something we want that we do not have. So we lie. And this text, I believe, is warning our hearts as God's people to don't follow in those steps. Don't, don't follow in the steps of both Saul and this Amalekite. They're warnings. And by way of application, I would, I would encourage you just to take a moment and ask yourself, is there any area in my life where I'm tempted to lie in order to get what I really want? My guess is it will probably have something to do with what you crave most. So, friend, my encouragement to you is not to seize control through disobedience or deception. But see what we see in this type of Christ, David, who's submitting himself to God. Friend, entrust your desires over to him, believing he knows what's best for you. Faith, both Saul and the Amalekite took matters into their own hands. One by disobedience, the other through deception. In contrast, David chose to submit to God, didn't he? And this, I want to argue, is the lesson we learned from King David, God's spirit-anointed king. And faith, this is also the lesson we learn from David's son, Jesus Christ, the true promised king as well. Because faith, what do we observe from the life of Christ? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus did not seek to seize control, did he? No, instead, he submitted himself to the will of God the Father. Jesus trusted God's plan and timing. Indeed, do you remember what Jesus said to one of his disciples who tried to stop the chief priests from arresting him? 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus reminded everyone in his hearing that he had 12 legions of angels who could come and do his bidding whenever he asked. This is to say Jesus could have easily seized control and done things contrary to the will of his Father. But you know what? He didn't, and hear me, praise God for that. Because it's only through Jesus Christ's obedient life, a life that was obedient to the point of death on a cross, that you, friend, are saved. Think about this. Jesus made the ultimate deadly decision. Not in an act of sin like Saul and the Amalekite, but in an act of obedience to God the Father. And this is the good news we celebrate and enjoy as God's people. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus Christ died to save disobedient, deceptive people like you and me. On the cross, Christ paid the price we are owed for our sin. Then three days later, he rose from the grave defeating sin and death, and proving himself to be the very promised king spoken of in 2 Samuel 7. Fred, do you know this salvation? Or are you still trying to seize control of your own life? God's word would exhort you to turn from your self-righteousness, to turn from trying to take control, but instead go all in and put your trust and confidence in what Christ has done on your behalf. And for those of you who belong to Jesus, may our lives be marked by trust and submission to him in all areas of life. For truly, and I end with this, what more could Christ do to earn our trust? Let's pray.